Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast from the Australian Men's Shed Association, shoulder to shoulder, virtually. Coming up in this episode of The Shed Wireless, we head to Ireland to see how shedders are surviving in that part of the world, the wonder of working with wood, and how it nearly cost Stuart two of his fingers. Rip Woodchip has been cooking and he's feeling pretty pleased with himself. And school is in with the legendary Professor John MacDonald, one of the great minds of the Shed Movement. I'm Aaron Carney and we're joined as always by David Helmers, Executive Officer of the Australian Men's Shed Association. Hi. Hey Aaron, how's your week been, mate? Yeah, great, thank you. And I'm enjoying... A greater sense of positivity that seems to be around at the moment. There's a light at the end of the tunnel and it's no longer a steam train coming at us. Yeah, that's true. And look, I can I can relate to that. In returning to positive things, I've returned out of retirement back to the golf course on the weekend. And? Posted one of my better scores ever. This is an easy game, mate. Easy game. <laughs> so I keep saying it's a love-hate relationship and I'm loving it at the moment and it's loving me, mate. Come back next episode where you'll get some golf clubs very cheap because he's changed his mind again. <laughs> yeah, I've, got, I've still got to go every for, for a swim in the, the creek on the 12th hole and find me driver, I think. Speaking of positive, and I know this will be irritating to some listeners, but delightful to others, some sheds have been allowed to reopen. Yes, yes, and it's still it's varied from state to state. But as of you know, this week, we're seeing a lot of the restrictions ease, and a lot of the sheds are dusting out the the shed and firing up the the bandsaws and you know getting all the tools ready and getting back into the shed. So it's really good to see that, and you know, everyone's very keen. But it's good to see too that the sheds are putting a lot of work into their management and their operations, so they can return safely to the shed and comply with all the current restrictions that are still still in place while we're there and we just really want to encourage them to you know have a good covid you know safety plan in action and all be sensible about it once you return back to the shed and it really is as we've been saying for a number of weeks now almost a, a local council by local council process that you can't reasonably say when we'll all be open because it's just being made at a, at a very local level, that decision, isn't it? It is. And we're seeing that a lot in some states where the sheds are, you know, under the state regulations allowed to return. Um, we're seeing in some areas, you know, local councils are delaying that with public facilities and, you know, they control a lot of the buildings that sheds are in and saying, no, guys, just wait another couple of weeks. And so it's coming back at a very local level, the final decision. Most of the sheds are being very proactive and talking with their councils or land trusts and making sure they've got the green light before they go. Thank you to everyone who has been in contact with us at the Shed Wireless at menshed.net. You can reach out directly to the show, and we're really appreciative to those who've done so. The Shed Wireless at menshed.net. And in particular, if you would like us to visit your shed and hear a little bit about what you do there, take us on something of a tour, then by all means get in contact with us at the Shed Wireless at Men's Shed. But I wanted to send out 
A shout out to, I think you say it, Ewan, E-U-A-N. You would think that's quite an Irish name, is it not? E-U-A-N. You say that Ewan or Owen, do you reckon? Ewan, Ewan. We've called him Owen to make it easier a lot of the time. So I think it's actually pronounced Ewan or Owen. It, it depends which twang of accent you put to it, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, okay. You know who you are and uh, thank you. Involved in, uh, I won't share the whole correspondence, but involved in the shed up at Mackay and talking about uh, some community collaborations between churches and men's sheds. And we see that uh, there's some reference that you will hear about how in certain areas Effectively, the men's shed has become the local community centre. So uh, thank you. And please continue to get in contact with us at the shed wireless at menshed.net. Now, David, I've some interesting statistics to share with you. Uh, I'm pretty sure that you would be able to have a guess at which country in the world is the biggest listener of the Shed Wireless. <laughs> That's not too hard to guess. And I have to say, it's by a margin of about uh, yeah, about 50 to 1. <laughs> but uh, far and away, Australia is the biggest consumer of the Shed Wireless. I think you will be slightly surprised by two things, A, the diversity, but actually the order of merit. So the second most listened to location for the Shed Wireless in the world after Australia is the United Kingdom. Uh -huh. In the bronze medal position, New Zealand, then the United States, then Sweden, okay. and Ireland, where we'll be heading in just a moment, comes in next after Australia, the UK, New Zealand, United States, and Sweden, which is surprising to me. I thought the Irish might be higher up the list. Yeah, that is amazing. Absolutely amazing. I would have Sweden beat Ireland on there. Not that it's a competition, but we might make one out of it. Uh, come on, Ireland. <laughs> I'm pretty confident that after this episode featuring our Irish friends, uh, that number, they might rocket up the leaderboard, I think. Let, let's revisit the scoreboard next week, Aaron. And... <laughs> yeah. This will blow your mind as well. Also being downloaded in Indonesia, Canada, Norway, Netherlands, and Fiji. So fascinating where we are being heard, wherever you are listening to us around the world. Thanks for being in the shed with us. Very impressive numbers there, Aaron. Who would have thought, mate? Who would have thought that it's a bit like sheds itself, just a little simple idea, and it's just escalating into a whole new phenomena all on its own. I wonder if we're translated <laughs> because of our accents in one or two locations. Uh, we are about to go international. I know that your international men's shed friends, it's like children, you're not allowed to have a favourite, but if you did, it could well be the Irish, couldn't it? I've got to disclose probably a, a personal thing here because I've been working with Barry and John for the last 13 years of my life. I'm you know, very pleased to call them both good friends as well now. And when I go over there, I'll visit the UK and Sweden and Denmark, places like that. But I base myself out of Ireland for a good three to four weeks. So it's over the last decade, Dublin's become a bit of a second home. I'm quite familiar with the city now. So yeah, look, I've worked with the with Barry and John for a long, long time and seen it grow from one shed to the 500 plus they've got there now. So I've got a, a lot of affection to it with the Irish. They are good men. Let's go and spend some time with them. Let's head to Ireland. You're listening to The Shed Wireless. The truth of the matter is shedding is one of the great Australian exports. Born down under, shedding is now global. But 
we share a special brotherhood with the Shedders of Ireland, partly because of our cultural history, our European history here in Australia, and partly because they're just bloody good blokes. So we thought we'd get together and unfortunately not share a Guinness due to the modern world that we find ourselves in, but nevertheless enjoy a bit of the crack with Barry Sheridan, the CEO of the Irish Men's Shed Association. Hello, Barry. Morning, Aaron. How are you? Yes, great. Thank you. The Australian Men's Shed Association Executive Officer, David Helmers, is with us. Hello, David. Hey, Aaron. How are you, mate? Yes, great. Thank you. And Irish Men's Shed founder, John Avoy, is with us as well from Ireland. Hello, John. Hello, Aaron. How are you? Yes, great. Thank you. Welcome all. Uh, Barry, if I can start with you. We just wanted to get a snapshot of what life is like in Ireland amid this global pandemic that we find ourselves in. Yeah, I, I think like the rest of the world, uh, we've been hit with something that's really unprecedented, unseen, and uh, we're trying to make sense of the whole lot of it over here in Ireland. Uh, the country has pretty much been in on lockdown or closed up, really. So Schools closed, uh, people not at work, people working remotely, um, bars, pubs, restaurants, hotels, shops, everything closed. And it's been it's been quite strict, really. But, you know, I, I think the numbers here um, have been quite dramatic, well, quite dramatic for a small country like ourselves. I think we're up over 1,500 deaths here, unfortunately, which is, which is really sad, you know, for a small nation like ourselves uh, and over... I think we're over 20,000 cases now, you know, so it's it's been quite traumatic, I think, for an awful lot of people, especially on the vulnerable group and the older age group. Uh, and it's quite it's been quite restrictive on everyone, really, you know, so everyone's had to adapt and change. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about this new normal. So life as we once knew it, as in, as you mentioned, go to the pub or having a drink or meeting your friends or even visiting your sheds all that has changed for everyone so it is uh it's been a really really strange time i suppose is the best way of putting it but uh thankfully we're beginning to see the shoots of uh, a bit of light coming at the end of the tunnel but uh we've a fair distance to go yet i think john a lot's been made of the fact that the italian lifestyle was particularly challenged by covid but i can't imagine many places in the world that would find it harder to social isolate than Ireland. It's a real community-based culture. Are people struggling? Yeah, I think a lot of people are struggling, Aaron. Uh, but I also think like that the Irish, in, no more than a lot of countries, are very resilient. And, uh, you know, that there's also, uh, right from the start, there was a lot of kind of positive comments that we'll get through this. And there was a lot of hope uh, that people, you know, can come out the other side, the side of this crisis, uh, you know, as strong as ever. There's a lot of learning going on. A lot of people, like Barry had said, are adapting to an, a new way of life. Um, but of course, a lot of people miss a lot of their uh, usual connections with other people, whether that's, you know, out doing, at sporting events in particular uh, or, or, or in the pubs. Those things are really missed by a lot of people. Barry, what did it do to shedding? Well, literally what it did overnight was really, you know, it, we found ourselves in a position where, it was asking the guys in the sheds and the sheds around the, the whole of Ireland to actually do the opposite to what they were set up to do, which was to connect and, you know, not to not to isolate themselves and try to connect with each other and uh, bring people together, you know. And all of a sudden overnight we were, we were saying, guys, hold on a second, we can't do that anymore. And, you know, if you stop and think of that, like we've probably 
between 12 and 15,000 men every day going into sheds here and over 450 sheds. And, and it's a small enough country, as you know, Aaron, and it's kind of, that that's that's a huge shock because you know we know and we've seen as similarly to Australia we we know the impact that the sheds have and how important sheds are to people's day to day lives and to all of a sudden find yourself in a position where God that's gone from your life that that leaves a huge void in itself but I think I think one of the real important words and John mentioned it there you know throughout this right from the very beginning is resilience you know and we I think. Ireland, in terms of our culture, you know, we're very community driven. And I think maybe we lost sight of that a little bit over, you know, with yeah, in the last 20 years. But I think something like this brings out the best in, in a lot of us, you know, and that sense of community spirit, that sense of looking out for your neighbor, that sense of, you know, looking out for uh, the more vulnerable people in our communities has really come to the fore. And we've seen people, re- even within sheds, you know, really, really reaching out to not only support their own shed members, but actually to go further than that and actually look in their own communities and go, well, how can we help other people here? And I think that resilience and that sense of community and that sense of just care is something that I think has really come to the fore. And I think it's something that's been really, really important. But I think underlying all of that, uh, there's no getting away from it being very, very difficult for the men who were used to going through a shed maybe two or three times a week, having a cup of tea, having their chats, meeting the guys, making that connection, make, making new friends and giving back to their communities. That is gone for the for, for currently, you know, and that is really, really difficult. But I'm, I'm really proud in terms of how they've reacted. And we look forward to the day where we can start uh, start trying to get them back up and running again, even though it might be slightly different, but to start getting them back up and running again. Uh, and no doubt it'll come through stronger, you know. David, that mirrors your experience and the Australian experience very closely, doesn't it? It does, you know, and I think, you know, we have to acknowledge the fact that we've been very fortunate here in Australia who's, you know, compared on the global scale with the, the COVID crisis and we're going through that stage now as you and I have discussed before, Aaron, you know, in previous episodes the sheds are very anxious now to reopen but what the sheds will look like in you know in a post-COVID-19 world will maybe vastly or even you know mildly different to what they were were before with a you know with growing unemployment um there'll be a lot more demand on the sheds you know for you know what they do and you know, we've already seen a lot of shed, uh, sheds getting inquiries, you know, new members. You know, I was talking to one the other day. They've got 20 new members on the waiting list um, already and they haven't reopened yet. So, you know, I think things will will change after all of this. There's perhaps a learning from Australia for Ireland when they find themselves at the same stage in this journey as we are as well. And I think a lot of us underestimated how difficult the coming out of isolation would be. Uh, I know a lot of us, when the crisis hit, everyone was worried about each other's mental health, how they were going to make the adjustment, making sure there was support. But it's evident to me from the school kids through to the shedders who are in constant contact with AMSA and uh, got a million questions and a million demands, David, is that the transition back out has a unique set of challenges as well. We, I'm looking at a lot of the, you know, currently a lot of the historical context and, you know, how sheds were established in Ireland and the, the effect it, you know, had on, you know, within men who were unemployed at the time. And, you know, I'm revisiting a lot of that stuff there, John, is expecting the same thing. History is going to repeat itself, I think, over here. 
Yeah, I think so, Dave. I was thinking about that during the week. Um, like when we when we first met, you and I, and, and it was like 2009, and uh, Ireland was just at the peak of uh, the recession, and it was uh, the global economic crisis at the time. Um, mm -hmm. I think uh, now, for the first time in history, is the only time we had higher unemployment than we did at that moment in time. We had hundreds of thousands of guys who had previously been been in stable employment were were out of work and we had um from a sheds point of view it was a perfect storm to be setting up sheds because there was tens of thousands of guys who had time on their hands who didn't have previously and they were active and they were looking for something to do and looking for something constructive and positive to do so when the sheds came along it was a great avenue for them to channel that energy now it was also a very difficult time with similarities today lots of men were worried about how were they going to pay their mortgages how were they going to meet their commitments support their families um and all those things, once we come out of this immediate crisis of going, well, we've survived that. Uh, and like Aaron has said, there's a lot of other challenges waiting around the corner, you know, for people individually and as, as, as both countries, as a society in general. John, we have a lot of conversations in Australian sheds about secession planning and uh, how do we get younger blokes into the shed. And that is one of the key differences between uh, what was happening in Ireland and what was happening here. We skewed much older than what you did. What can you tell Australian listeners about having a mix of younger and older men in the sheds? Yeah, I suppose that was something, and it was quite fortuitous at the time that we landed on our feet in that regard. During that period of like 2009 through 2012 or so, uh, unemployment was high in Ireland. So there was these guys who had time to attend sheds and p contribute very positively to the development of the shed movement. Um I suppose that changed subsequently when the Ireland's economy got moving again and most of those guys got, got into employment and, you know, and, and they're still very welcome and they still attend a lot of sheds and maybe Barry could uh, shed some light on that, excuse the pun, but uh, we <laughs> but we do. Uh, I suppose back then, yeah, it was just kind of, uh, you know, how, how the marbles fell in a way and uh, we, were, we were lucky to uh, be able to accommodate that. Um, However, I, I still think that like over a period of time, we found that it was usually the older blokes that, uh, you know, stayed in the sheds for a longer period of time. They were the guys who kind of made the shed their own and, you know, became committee members and stuff like that. And, and like really kind of, the, you know, the fundamental building blocks of the successful shed movement, um, you know, because uh, but but and, and we did many other endeavors to try and encourage uh, more young men, uh, guys in their 20s or 30s to attend sheds. But I think as things moved on, we realized that that was suitable for them for a place and time. Uh, but over a longer period, you know, those guys have, have a lot of other things to be doing. Uh, doesn't mean they're not very, very welcome at the sheds. But I think at, at one stage, and I remember talking to Dave about it at, at Lent, you know, I think we decided to, uh, you know, focus on what we were really good at and that was like creating that space for older guys and guys who had that time and at a certain stage in their life and i think that's gone on to be you know hugely successful yeah look i think i think that's really nailed it there john you know and i think you know when the intergenerational piece when it happens within the sheds is it's hugely beneficial for for both the, the older members and the younger members um and i think it's an ongoing challenge to attract younger younger men to the sheds environment, especially for any prolonged kind of period. Um, and I think it's something that 
we can constantly try and uh, resolve or put programs in place to try and attract them. But I think it has to be a bit more natural than that. And I think sheds are more natural than that in terms of people find them at a point in their time where they really need the shed, you know. And if if if, if they move on from that in terms of their their uh, I suppose uh, working uh, life or whatever it might be, you know, that's a, that's a good that's a good result as well, you know. So it's kind of it, it's I suppose it's going back to that though that old idea of having that door open, you know, and having that door open for anyone. And I think once the door is open for anyone and you're encouraging anyone to come into the shed, uh, then you'll find it'll find its place. You know, and I, I think while the the future looks like the sheds are going to be needed more than ever post-COVID, I think we're going to have that huge increase in demand, as, as Dave said and John alluded to, that uh, how it looks like uh, very similar to what 10 years looks, looked ago uh, when we started the sheds here. I think that's going to happen again. And I think it's a matter of being there to support them people because... You know, you know, without looking too long term down the line, let's deal with what's in front of us. And what's in front of us is an awful lot of people trying to recover from a huge change within their lives, uh, their country, in terms of uh, how they went about their daily lives. And I think that's what we need to look at in the short term. You know, is being there to first of all get the sheds reopened, second of all to welcome anyone who needs to come to the sheds who would like to come to the sheds. And being there to support them in the best manner that we can, that it can help them in their own personal situation to uh, get one step further down the line in terms of uh, maybe dealing with whatever situation they find themselves in. Yeah, we're looking at men looking after men. Yeah, then in turn looking after their communities. You know, I, th- I suppose the very beginning of it all, we've got men looking after themselves. You know, and that's one of been the the defining things about men sheds all along that. Yeah, we look at that definition of people volunteer to do something. And when they're volunteering, they're giving up their time for the benefit of other people. Um, In the sheds, yes, they're volunteering. A lot of them say they volunteer a lot of their time. But in more of a a deeper aspect of that, what they're doing is looking after themselves, you know, through that contribution. And, yeah, I think we're going to see, yeah, a bit of a revision on that and, yeah, how and how the sheds, yeah, do look after the community and are a key part of the community. But more importantly, it's about the men looking after themselves and looking after each other. Good thoughts, Barry. One of the key differences that I think will emerge as we come out of this on different timeframes is. Australia is essentially a commonwealth or a federation, and so there are state and local laws to abide by. Uh, Ireland is much more generic. Do you have any idea what the roadmap out is going to look like yet? Yeah, well, we're working very closely with uh, the government and within the public, you know, obviously, first and foremost, the most important piece here is to when we reopen sheds is to be done safely with everyone's health in mind and making sure it's done in the best uh, possible manner in line with uh, public health guidelines and the government's roadmap. So the government here have uh, issued a five-phased easing of restrictions, I suppose, and that'll run throughout our summer. So that'll run right to August, which will be phase five. And every three weeks, there's a new phase. And so slowly, we're lifting restrictions in different sectors across the board. So what we're looking at at the moment is that sheds will be uh, uh, reopening. And when I say reopening, it's nearly the wrong phrase for it because a shed won't be opening the same way as the shed was pre-COVID-19, if you know what I mean. But we're looking at phase four, which is from the 20th of July, the end of July. 
and that's the date we're working towards at the moment. So we're working closely with the government, Department of Health and the HSC here, which is our health, health body, to really provide really clear guidelines for sheds in terms of what that'll look like and how to do that safely, you know. So obviously, you know, social distancing, hand etiquette, hand washing, all, all these little pieces will come into play uh, and it'll be all in line with the public health advice. So that's, that's the important bit. So it'll it'll look like if you've got a shed with normally 20 or 30 members, you know, not all 20 or 30 members will be able to be in the shed at one time. So that could be down to a smaller number of even our social distancing here is two meters currently. So you have to have two meter space between everyone. So you're talking about that could be down to seven or eight members at one time, you know. So that's that's a big piece of work and that's hard to implement um, within a shed. So what we're trying to do is do it gradually so the sheds will open slowly. Uh, we'll work with our committees within the sheds to actually help them implement the guidelines and have them in place. And then from the 20th of July, that they can meet in very small groups and they can do some social activities and then build up towards the workshops, etc. after that. So... We're, yeah, it's a busy period now because uh, I think what we're finding is that the shed's looking for the guidance, uh, similar to Dave there, you know, a lot of questions, how do we do this, how do we open, and what we're trying to do is provide uh, the clearest possible kind of uh, pathway for them to open it in as safe uh, a manner as possible, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a big piece of work and it's important that we get it right, uh, because also, Aaron, you know, there's there's a lot of anxiety and fear out there amongst people, especially some of the uh, more vulnerable groups, you know, the over 70s, which there's a lot of it within the shed movement, you know, about going back to a shed at all, you know. So we have to kind of ensure that the, the measures we put in place or ask the sheds to put in place or advise the sheds to put in place uh, are ones that will kind of help to lay some of them fears and anxiety that might exist there and uh, uh, provide a, a safe environment for people to get back together and uh, meeting again. So from the 20th of July, so we're a bit behind where you guys might be in terms of getting the sheds open again. Uh, but I think, you know, it's, you know, we're not going to do anything that uh, uh, goes outside the, the government guidelines at the moment. And that's the, from the 20th of July onwards. So we look forward to it, but there's a lot of work to be done between now and then to get the sheds in a position that they can open safely, you know. Well, we're very hopeful here on the Shed Wireless of uh, joining you on that journey, having regular correspondence, and it doesn't all have to be COVID-related. We're reaching out to our friends across the world and learning about the similarities and the differences between shedding in various corners of the world. Uh, many of the people who are listening to this will have met you on your various visits out here, uh, but even if we've met nobody from a shed in another part of the world, we share a special bond. Bond. And for better or for worse, we all share a special bond through this COVID crisis as well. So I promise we will catch up with you very, very soon in an upcoming episode of The Shed Wireless. But Barry Sheridan, CEO of the Irish Men's Shed Association and Irish Men's Shed founder, John Avoy, thank you both for being with us on The Shed Wireless. You're welcome, Aaron. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much, Aaron. Thank you both and thank you to you as always, David Helmers, uh, the Executive Officer of the Australian Men's Shed Association. Tune in for upcoming episodes. I promise it won't be the last you hear of our Irish friends. Nailed it! Nailed it! Nailed it! Nailed it! With Rick Woodchip. G'day, shutters! Rip Woodchip here. How are you going today? I've just been up in the veggie garden picking a few bits and pieces to complement me pot roast tonight. This might not surprise you, but I really am a jack of all trades. 
And this last few weeks, since it's been becoming a little bit cooler, I've been tinkering a little bit more and showing off me prowesses in the kitchen. You know, I reckon there's nothing better than a warm stew on a cold winter's night. And with a stack of toast on the side to soak up the juices and wipe the bowl clean. Saves on washing up too, I reckon. But the missus doesn't tend to agree on that one. You've also got to love the waft of a stew floating through the house. That is truly the smell of a happy household. And I reckon if you could bottle that stuff, I'd spray it under my armpits. Beautiful. And it's all a little more satisfying and definitely a little tastier when you know that just about all the ingredients have been plucked fresh out of your very own veggie garden. Now, I'm a traditional kind of chef, but like with everything else, I'm always open to expanding my mind a little bit, and lately I've been experimenting with a few different recipes. There's not much you can't find online nowadays, and it seems like every man and his dog's brought out some sort of a cookbook over the years. That might have to be my next little venture. But when it comes to cooking stews and casseroles, it ain't rocket science, and I reckon you can whack a dirty shoe in a decent stew if you put the right mix of veggies and meat with it, and it all still please the palate beautifully. So much time and effort can go into a pot of stew though. From growing the veggies, cultivating the soil, planting the seeds, watching them grow as I water them every day, looking after them, plucking them out, and taking them all down the house to show the missus like a proud bloody parent, putting it all together, putting it in a pot. Now I know I could just go to the shops and buy all the ingredients. It's a lot cheaper and easier. Or even just crack open a can and whack it in the microwave. But where's the fun in that? It's only since things have slowed down a little bit though that I've really taken the time to absorb the whole experience. Something I wish I'd done many, many years ago. With a lot of things. But just never had the time or inclination. Or some other bloody lousy excuse. It's not always about the result. It's a process, I reckon. I don't just mean cooking. It's the same with everything. How often do we really stop and smell the roses, as I say? Not nearly enough. Sometimes you just got to stop, sit, breathe it all in, and notice all the little stuff around us that we just take for granted. I think they call that mindfulness nowadays, if you need to put a label on it. But I don't reckon you have to sit on top of a mountain with your legs crossed in a dress or a sheet, but each to their own. I get my dose of daily meditation just by sipping me coffee every morning, or even mowing me lawn. I just switch off to all the bullshit and focus on the right here, right now. And each day I realise just what a lucky bastard I really am. Listen to me, I'm starting to sound like the Maharishi Yogi for goodness sakes. You know, maybe them Buddhist blokes were onto something there. Anyway fellas, I ought to go stir me stew. And don't be afraid to send me a few recipes on The Shed online or the shed wireless at mensshed.net. All right, fellas, talk to you soon. Have a good week. You're listening to The Shed Wireless. When you head down to The Shed, I am willing to bet that you aren't thinking to yourself, I'm only doing this for my health. This is like eating my vegetables. And yet shedding has become globally recognised and respected as a men's health initiative. So how can that be? Professor John MacDonald is a patron of the Australian Men's Shed Association and the director of Men's Health at Western Sydney University. And he joins us for Men's Health Month here on the Shed Wireless. Hello, John. Hello there, Aaron. Nice to be with you. So lovely to have you with us. And I'm really glad that we've time to catch up on a few different topics. 
Let's talk first of all about that. When is a health initiative not a health initiative? I would suggest it's when it's a men's shed. Yeah, it's very interesting for me to hear you say that, Aaron, because I think about 15 years ago at one of the men's sheds annual or national gathering, um, I from the podium said, you know, sheds are good for your health. And um, somebody shouted from the audience, quite one of the shedders quite rightly shouted, hey, we don't want the sheds to become doctor surgeries. And he was absolutely right. And I think since then, we've come to, I hope I've had something to do with that, come to realize that precisely although sheds are good for your health, they're not meant to be a substitute for a doctor's waiting room or doctor's surgeries. And just because doctors have difficulty to reach men, and we shouldn't always say that it's men who have difficulty to reach doctors, it's sometimes the other way around. But just because of that, doesn't mean to say that we should think that, okay, they're going to use the sheds as a substitute for getting in contact with men. I can talk <laughs> a lot about how sheds are good for men's health or for everybody's health being together like that. If we can start by zooming right out uh, and discussing a couple of ideas around what does it mean to have health if you are a man? It's a phrase that's bandied around so much, it's if not become meaningless, it's at least uh, open to wide interpretation. So what do you consider men's health to be if it's not as simple as a doctor's checkup? Well, I think it's good to get away from academia and um, universities and people, professors and other people writing about this, but just good common sense. When you think of, for example, a child, what makes a child healthy? It's not only, it's not even, especially going to the doctor a lot. What makes a child healthy? For example, going to school, the child has friends, the child isn't bullied, the child eats well, the child feels secure in the family, the child feels happy about herself, himself. That's basically what makes someone healthy. And that's not just an idea. If we need it, there's a lot of research to show that the things that keep us healthy are in fact things like I've said, like being loved and being supported at home. And as we get older, having a job and being secure about the job. And that's what we're noticing now, um, for example, with the, with the virus, that there's um, people that are acknowledging, thank goodness at last, that health is connected with secure employment. And when people don't have secure employment, then their health can be seriously jeopardized. Even, sad to say it, yesterday I was talking in a group where fortunately the Minister for Suicide Prevention was acknowledging that lack of work can push men towards that horrible path of taking their own lives. We know therefore the opposite of that. Work is good for your health. Lots of things make you healthy, not just going to the doctor. So what I'm hearing you say there is a lot of the traditional approach to health is okay your blood pressure is okay your heart is working well your cognitive function is good right that makes you fine but what I'm hearing you say is that won't be enough if you're in an environment that is unhealthy and I don't necessarily mean next to a factory that's pushing out smog I mean in a in an unloved environment or a place where you don't feel like you have purpose or value exactly so if you don't feel that you're welcome somewhere if you feel that you're out of place then it does 
do damage to your health. And if we needed to, though good common sense tells us we don't, but if we needed to, and I've been part of that, trying to prove this by um, looking at the impact on the body's immune system of being in social support. And we've had some success in that. And the medical profession is acknowledging that, um, yes, social support actually affects the body. Social support meaning being with people, being feeling secure, feeling okay about yourself because of the people and the environment around you actually affects your body and your mind. Mm. And so that um, we could say that, okay, in fancy language, the social determinants of health. When I first started to speak like that, people would shudder. Even my colleagues say, oh, what do you mean by that? Fancy words. Well, okay, but it's not so complicated. The things which keep you healthy are the things around you, the things which support you in your well-being. Men like to have plans and lists and blueprints. And is there, therefore, a recipe for being healthy? Um, at the risk of contradicting someone as eminent as yourself, Aaron, I would say that when you say that men like to have lists, I think, yeah, I know what you mean. And I think you can say lots of men, myself included, <laughs> need lists. Yeah, I know what you're going to say to me. You're saying if all else fails, then read the instructions. Is that, is that what you're saying? Almost, almost. But what I'm going to say, not all men are the same. Um, that's one of the things that's great for me about the shed that um, it's open to diversity. Um, I could talk more about that, but very briefly, I would say that, for example, someone said to me, oh, but I wouldn't be very good at the shed because I hate woodwork. Well, my last attempt at woodwork was um, long before you were born, Aaron. And yeah, I, I wouldn't right. necessarily be good at it anymore. And it's not about that. It's, the sheds are not about that. I remember when the then Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, uh, launched the 2010 National Men's Health Policy, which had something to do with, and he launched it in a shed in Victoria. And um, at that point, it's a huge shed. Some men indeed were doing woodwork. But other men were at the other end of the shed and they were making muffins or making scones. And um, mm. they were very happy about that. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, they offered some to the Prime Minister, but they offered it straight from the oven and they were holding gloves because they'd taken the plate straight from the oven. And the Prime Minister wasn't warned of that. So he took the plate in his hand and um, memorably burnt his fingers on the, on, on, on the scone. So it was an an example for me of that, um, not so much in burning his fingers, but the shed isn't just there for men who do woodwork. It's there for anybody who wants to hang out with other men. Why does that diversity matter? Yes, well, I mean, imagine if we were all the same. Um, and it's actually, that's part of the challenge of the shed. If we, um, if we were only with people who were like ourselves, then, to be frank, it'd be rather boring. <laughs> if they were all Scottish voices like mine and coming from my background, I think I'd be quite bored. Part of the diversity is um, is what keeps us alive, adapting to other people, sometimes younger people, sometimes people from a different culture and even different ages in the shed. That's part of the excitement of um, still feeling secure but being in touch with people who are different from ourselves. Well, and the photo negative of that, if I can bring to bear from my area of study, is that social media 
the algorithms therein tend to do the exact opposite. They surround you only with people who see things the way you do and reinforce your own beliefs, prejudices and dispositions. And that can be really unhealthy in a different way. Absolutely, Adam. If I'm allowed to say that, I remember, okay, it was in another, in a, a faraway, a faraway <laughs> state from New South Wales, but we were having a um, a statewide shared movement and after three days one man said publicly um, uh, this has been very good John, uh, Professor McDonald but um, and the sheds are great as long as we don't have any poofters is what he said and then there was a kind of gasp and I of course then challenged that and said look the sheds are for everybody, black people, white people, fat people thin people, yeah. gay people, straight people, anybody <laughs> any man um, etc and afterwards someone came to me and said, thank you very much, because one of the three organizers of the shed, the shed movement in this state is a gay man, so it was very important to say that. And that could be a bit of a challenge for some people. Um, I think that kind of challenge is an important one to meet. Fascinating. You take me off on a tangent. I have been asked many times, is Australia a racist place? And my answer, my standard answer to that is, oh, it's yes, it's philosophically racist, but it's practically not racist at all. And what I mean by that is uh, you will hear somebody say outrageous things about migrants or religious groups or ethnic minorities. And then you'll say, oh, yeah, but what about uh, what about Jim from the cricket club? He's Aboriginal. Oh, well, I mean, not Jim. He's good. He's one of us. And what about what about Ahmed from the shed? He, you know, he's Iranian, right? Oh, well, I mean, obviously he's one of us. But the, and and I'm intrigued by this idea of it's very easy to hate the idea of somebody. It's very hard to hate the actual person. I don't think that's very insightful, Adam. I think it's absolutely at the core of the shed too. And if, if we're honest, we could say that individually, many. People are not, as you're indicating, racist. But there is a, a racist atmosphere around in the in our, in, our, in the air we breathe and sometimes in the newspapers that we read. Um, yes. But face-to-face with people, that disappears. And, of course, for people like me, um, difficult. Well, my, my, my wife is from India, and I've worked a lot of my life in Africa and other countries. So I've been a stranger in other people's countries, and I'm very conscious of that. And I'm very conscious that although people don't like me to say it very often, um, I feel it. In a, although I feel at home here in Australia after 24 years, we are in in a sense in other people's country, and um, it, that that notion of being that we are the we are the stranger, we are the the outsider, mm-hmm. not the other person. I think that's quite a healthy one if we keep keep it in mind, and if we can keep the sheds open to everybody, that would be wonderful. And I see this play out in a class structure as well. One of the favourite stories that Shedders love to tell is how, uh, and and I I don't even want to give an example because I don't want to uh, project my own prejudice around what's a prestige job and what's not, but they, they will ostensibly say, oh, you know, somebody who only got a year five education and some guy who was a QC, they're the best of friends now in the shed. So clearly it's about transcending class as well. Absolutely. One of the happiest times I had at formal meetings, I was at a formal meeting run by, I think, who was it? It would have been the, the governor who was then also the patron of of the shed and the governor of um, yeah, 
the meeting was in, in, in Sydney and we were on the lawn having a little drink, I think. <laughs> and then this very elegant man who was older even than me approached me in a very nice suit that I, I, I was a bit jealous of. And he came and said, <laughs> um, I'd like to say something. I said, yes. He said, you know, I've been the CEO of a, of a, a big company and he told me the name, which I didn't recognize um, for many, many years. But he said, now for the last year I've been in a shed and you know, he said, and he became quite excited. We in my shed, we're making a, a crash, a kind of cradle for a disabled woman who's having a baby so that she can actually take care of the baby and feed the baby in, in a shed and pick the baby up. So we've been designing it around her. And he said, I've never been so happy in my life. Mm. <laughs> I thought that was quite moving and quite a recommendation for the shed myself. You've walked right to the edge of one of the points that I wanted to discuss with you. For some of us, it takes a lifetime to work this out. Some people get through their whole life without ever working it out. But at least part of what is great about shedding and what it does for men is that projecting good into the world, doing something for others, investing your time in making the world a marginally better place, that is one of the keys to happiness, isn't it? Absolutely. And of course, although I resist some generalizations about men, mm. I'm going to risk one now, which is that, yeah, that doing good in the world is something many men would say, well, no, I'm not really, I'm just whatever. They would shrug it off. But I think um, if we take a step back and think about it, yes, of course, it's actually the quality of our relationships with other people and the fact that maybe in however small a way we are doing something to make the world a better, happier, more easy place for people to be is very, very important and is linked to our own happiness. You're involved in men's health at Western Sydney University. So we've talked about racial differences, we've talked about class differences. What about age differences? And I feel like this might be a challenge ahead for some of the sheds, the job losses, the unemployment that will happen in the wake of the COVID crisis means that perhaps a different sort of man is going to be turning up at the door of your shed in the next six months, year and beyond. What can you tell us about how men of different ages are similar or different? Well, I think certainly different. I think there's no denying, I mean, at my age, and don't ask me, but I mean, at my age, I, I realise I'm different from where I was even 10 years ago and can't move around so much or play so much or whatever. But similar, yeah, I think the similarities are there. All, all people need support, need to be liked, need to feel comfortable, need to be appreciated. And it's very interesting what you say, Aaron, about what... The, the, the changing in our workforce. And when, what I have seen across the country and in other countries, because as you know, the sheds exist in Ireland and in Scotland and in um, Iceland. Yeah, all over the, all I think of, Canada now, the US, all across the UK. Fantastic. Um, so in all of them, there's this challenge of, I think, um, intergenerational events. And I've seen myself here in the country, okay, until now, it's been occasional. I hope it gets more. I saw I was in a shed once. What happened to be that happened to be old um, tractors um, hanging around, and one gentleman, shall we say, of a certain age, 
similar to mine, was fixing it. And next to him and working with him was a, a young man. I mean, he must have been 18, 19. And they, they were working shoulder to shoulder. And the old man wasn't showing off, mm -hmm. but he was certainly he certainly had skills that the young man was very interested in. And they were there for, I mean, I was moving around doing other things, but after half an hour, these two were still at it, still occasionally grunting at one another and smiling and going for a cup of tea or whatever. But there was an intergenerational contact there, which I felt, yes, this is terrific. And if that's something the shed can not just have someone knocking at your door, like you said, it may happen, but actually maybe shedders can go out and suggest to young men, why don't you come in on a Wednesday when we're, we're doing this or that, or just come in and see us. We like to see young people, it cheers us up. And um, maybe there's some things we're doing you would be interested in. If, if we could do more of that in the days which are coming, which, as you're suggesting, will be full of um, younger people unemployed or half-employed or insecurely employed. I think if we can foster that for the sheds, we'll be doing something marvellous. I think that's a really profound point and uh, a strong challenge issued to everybody who is listening because I know that if I was a younger man who lost his job and was feeling a bit bewildered, I probably wouldn't think of coming and knocking on a shed door. But I also know that sheds have an enormous amount to offer that young man. So I think that's a powerful challenge that you have issued. Professor John McDonald, thank you. We might pause. This is not the end of our conversations. We will have you back in future episodes to explore some other angles, but very informative and enlightening in Men's Health Month to get your perspectives from many, many years of studying men's health in general and in particular in the context of The Shed. Thank you for being with us on The Shed Wireless. It's been my pleasure, and thank you very much for organising this, Adam. Staying strong. Staying sharp. And staying healthy. With The Shed Wireless. What is it about working with wood? There is something deep inside, I think, nearly all of us. Maybe it comes from the caveman days. We just love to work with this stuff. Some might go so far as to say it's therapeutic working with wood. Stuart Torrance is the Men's Health Officer at the Australian Men's Shed Association, and we like to talk about all sorts of things with him. Hello, Stuart. Hello, Aaron. How are you? Yes, I'm great, thank you. Are you good with wood? Oh, I've, I've lost. I've almost lost two fingers over wood. So, is that a yes or a no? <laughs> well, I, I suppose it's a love-hate relationship in that regard. <laughs> Tell me about your your personal history with wood. Have you done a bit of woodworking in your time? Um, I've attempted woodworking. Um, I, I'm one of these um, uh, people that try and build something. They have an idea of what they want to build, but at the end, it seems to have a wobble, a twist, um, something not quite square, plumb. There's always something wrong with it, and I'm never happy with my finished product. But I do love wood. I, I could look. It's like looking into a fire. You look at the grain, and you just get lost, uh, and you see something new. Like I'm sitting at my dining room table, and I'm just looking at the grain in the timber, and I just get lost in it. I love it. It's rather cathartic. 
Do you think that's the thing? The fact that at its core, both wood and humans are natural? I, I, I think there's an appreciation of beauty. It, like, start right from the tree, the tree itself. Like, you appreciate the tree, you appreciate the trunk, the strengths, the branches, the leaves, the flowers, the structure of the overall thing, the presence that it has in the in the bush, in the forest. Going back to the wheel of well-being, I think it's um, item five on the la- uh, on the list. Take notice, be curious, and I, I think as we look at wood and trees and all, all those sort of things, uh, we appreciate what's there, um, and then when you start to break it down, you've got. Uh, the the rough wood and you you start to see the things that you could take in one direction or another whether it be a nice big fat chunky piece that you could put on a lathe to make a bowl or some long planks to to you know put up a frame of a house and then you 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 start to turn that timber or cut the shape and you start to appreciate of uh, what it's becoming then you look at the grain as you sand the wood and you start to appreciate the, the the colors and the shapes. And I suppose the voice of the timber starts to come out. And then you stain uh, and you put a, a clear coat on and you're just like blown away by the, by the timber itself. And then you've got the process of doing all those things. I, I, th- I can see it being cathartic, healing, inspirational, all those sort of words. And what you're describing there is almost a relationship with the material that develops over time. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've never thought of it that way. I, I like this. I like what you're saying. Yeah, wood is useful to us in a lot of different incarnations, as you say, from something that you walk past in a bushwalk, through to something that you chop in half and put on a fire, through to the thing that could be a family heirloom for two hundred years. So. A whole different range of ways of coming at it, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. I think at the core, I think you were hitting the nail on the head. We're a part of nature. A tree is a part of nature. And I think there's a primordial connection. You say that you've never been completely happy with a project. What has been the project that you've enjoyed most? Converting bills, so they're the big bulbous um, growths on the side of trees. That when you see them in the floorboard, they're the knot, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, basically. But they twist and they turn, and they're almost like um, the the flickers uh, of fire. But once you start to to turn them, um, hone them out. So I I, I take those and I uh, create bowls. Um, so I'll carve out the middle and. I'll sand out the outside. And because it has a rustic shape, I sort of overcome my uh, issues with uh, plumbness and squareness. And I, I just literally enjoy the beauty of what is being created. The difficulty with a burl is you, you take a, a layer off and you think, wow, that's absolutely amazing, but it's not deep enough. So you take another layer off and you go, wow, that's even better than the one before. And every layer that you take off, you you expose uh, another length of beauty, uh, another depth of beauty, should I say, 
uh, in the timber. And sometimes um, I've come close to actually going right through <laughs> and, and um, ruining the yeah. ruining the job because you just keep going, wow, if I sand that little area there and try and bring that twist and turn more out in the timber because you'll sand away and then you'll blow the dust away and then you'll throw some water on, which allows you to see the, those grains uh, in the in the timber, and you just um, you just get blown away and appreciate the the beauty of what you're working with. So I I get these bowls and I make them and I get little brass uh, doorknobs and I use them for feet underneath. And um, yeah, it's it's a gift I give to uh, people when I get around to doing them. But I love bills. I, I love the, the the twists and turns and the knots uh, of the timber. Are you doing that all by hand or are you doing that with machinery? Well, uh, the last time I tried machinery is when I tried to take off two, two fingertips. <laughs> is that a story worth hearing? Tell me about that. <laughs> it's rather interesting. So when I first started with Men's Sheds, I was the Hunter Valley Cluster Coordinator for, for Sheds and um, I got the job out of the blue. I'd owned a, a building company and a plumbing company and um, I'd fallen flat on my back while doing all that and um, I needed something different and uh, became a, the cluster coordinator for sheds and someone said, uh, we don't have a work health and safety manual. Can you uh, put one together? And um, I was in the process of doing that, working from home. And I thought to myself, I, uh, I better make a gift for the person who gave me this job. So I started on a bill. And um, a year and a half later, I um, tried to slice my fingers off with a angle grinder because the bill wasn't going as quick as I wanted it to, and I only had six months left before the contract ended, and I wanted to give this person the bill. But it was a really old, hard piece of timber and a chisel uh, and a hammer uh, I was taking like five cuts and had to resharpen my chisel every five cuts. It was that hard. And I thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll, um, I'll get an Arbitec, a device that you put onto your angle grinder or uh, other piece of machinery, and it gouges timber out at great, great rate of knots. But I couldn't afford the Arbitec, so I went to Bunnings and I looked on the shelf and I thought there's got to be something similar. Oh, look at that, a biscuit joiner blade. It's only five teeth on the sucker. Um, I put that on my angle grinder. That'll take some wood off. So I came home and um, I uh, tried to put it on my angle grinder, but something was in the way, Aaron. What do you think that was? <laughs> Tell me. The guard. The guard on the machine was in the way and wouldn't... Sure, oh. so just remove that. There right? you go. That You you speak my logic, oh. well, my logic at the time. Do not try this at home. <laughs> so um, I, I put it on and I, it was flying wood everywhere. I was getting ahead in leaps and bounds. I was so impressed with this um, new innovation. Wood was flying all over the place in my, my workshop. Dust was everywhere. And all of a sudden, I felt this tiny little tap on my fingertips. I literally stopped the, the grinder. And because of the dust, um, everything sort of got clogged up. And um, I put my hand underneath my armpit. And I went, that wasn't good. I wasn't sure whether I'd taken the tops off of my two fingers or whether I'd just 
removed the um, the top layer of skin. And uh, my neighbour ran me up to the John Hunter Hospital uh, four days later and two surgeries. I have one fingernail that's grown back and another fingernail that has been totally removed. And I just now have little grabs that uh, grow out of my skin. So I'm, I'm missing a fingernail. Mind you, the bill at the end of the day became a bowl. It's absolutely fantastic. Looks looks amazing. And um, I believe it was one of the best presents that I've ever given somebody. To say that somebody put put their heart and soul into a gift is one thing. To say they put the end of their digits into it is quite another. Blood, sweat and tears, they say. <laughs> <laughs> Literally blood, sweat and tears. Plenty of those tears too, I tell you. <laughs> Lovely story. And I think you've captured the essence of the romance of wood and why even people with expertise in other areas are drawn to uh, have that dalliance. So I keep using that relationship language because that's what it feels like with wood and it really is an itch that some blokes go to the shed to scratch almost exclusively and uh, with varying degrees of success. When you said we were going to talk about uh, wood uh, and so on uh, and appreciating wood, I went. Well, what do you what What would that be called? And there's actually a term for it. It's called biophilia. <laughs> um, benefits of being connected to nature and natural elements, and they call it biophilic design. So when you're designing a building, an office, a house, and um, the more um, natural materials that you use, the more that you will feel. Uh, benefit when you actually enter into that zone and um, the feelings of well-being. So, you know, adding things like timber, plants, fish tanks into any of those environments in, uh, improves the appreciation and the increases, obviously, the dopamine and the cortisol. So there you go. A new word for you, Aaron, biophilia. It has been written down and it, I will use it in a sentence at dinner tonight, I promise. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Stuart, so great to catch up. Really fascinating conversation today and I appreciate your insights and it'd be fair to say you had a lot of skin in the game in today's uh, <laughs> conversation. So, I always enjoy the banter. Yeah, back at you. Stuart Torrance is the Men's Health Officer at the Australian Men's Shed Association. Now on The Shed Wireless, let's see who's working in the shed. If you pick up the phone and ring AMSA, many of you are ringing to talk to our working in the shed guest today, whether you actually realise that's who you needed to talk to or not. Melissa White, Mel, is AMSA's membership and insurance manager and she's working in the shed for us today. Hi, Mel. Hi, Aaron. How are you? Who actually calls you Melissa? Anyone? My mum. When you're naughty? No, no. So I was, everyone called me Melissa till I moved to Newcastle in 2020. Uh, sorry, in, oh, in 2000. And Newcastle has a habit of shortening everything. And I, I fought it for a little while and then I just gave up. So now I introduce myself as Mel as well. <laughs> Mel, what does your day-to-day job in the office, back in the day when we used to go to an office, what does your job entail? Yeah, well, that's that's a... How long is a piece of string? So I basically manage the insurance. Um, So that involves lots of questions about can we do this, can we not do this. Right now they're all can we open and I look after the membership database. 
So that's all the information on the website relating to the men's shed, like contact details, etc., and our internal database. And when you say managing the insurance, what exactly does that mean? Many of the sheds sit under one insurance policy and that has uh, firm boundaries about what you can and can't do. Am I understanding it right? Correct. Correct. But my role is much smaller than it sounds. Although I'm called the membership manager, I am just the shed first port of call, I guess, if they've got a a question instead of bombarding the brokers or the insurers directly, they can speak to me first. How did you find yourself in this job? Like most jobs in here, you do what somebody else either didn't want to do or there isn't somebody to do. (laughs) So we did have an insurance manager and he left the position the insurance carried on. There was no one to fill the role. So kind of just landed on my desk. And before you worked for AMSA, you managed a motel, you worked behind a bar. You've spent some time around blokes in your day. I sure <laughs> Yes, I have. For better or for worse. I've also been married three times, so I guess I really do qualify. Yeah. By the time you're done, you'll have your own mid-shit. <laughs> Quite possibly. Quite possibly. I can tell you, though, I haven't received a single flower or box of chocolates from a shed member yet. Oh, the challenge has been issued, gentlemen. The challenge has been issued. No, no, that's just a joke. (laughs) How did you find yourself at AMSA, though? So, you know, Liz McDonald. Liz McDonald was my boss at Catholic Care. She also happened to be David's boss. And while David was working on men's sheds under the Catholic Care umbrella, he handed me the phone, the 1300 number one day, and he said, Mel, can you make a couple of calls to the sheds? I'm busy. So I did, and I pretty much fell in love with it from that day. And I said to him, I better be the first person employed when AMSA takes off. And I was. What did you love about it? Well, I I just, oh, God, how long have we got? The floor's yours. Seriously, the, the shedders are just the most genuine, lovely bunch of guys they they think we're doing so much for them and they're so grateful for every bit of information we give them but it's them giving to us they give to us they give to the community they're just gorgeous i don't know i i it's too big for me to tell you yeah it is a thing where you kind of we're just doing a favour and then bang suddenly you're on the inside i mean just about everyone i know in the shed movement Never really woke up one morning going, oh, gee, I'd love to be a shedder. It's something that you you have a glancing blow with and then all of a sudden you're in the family, right? Exactly. You kind of just slip in. You slip over and you're in <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. Like, and I'm pretty sure the sheds are exactly the shedders. Exactly. A lot of them don't want to go. Yeah. They're like, oh, I don't want to go there where all those old blokes hang out. <laughs> And then once they're there, you can't keep them away. Yeah, you're, you're putting in the hours. So you must have had a blast. You mentioned Liz before, and she was our working in the shed guest a couple of episodes ago. You guys went road tripping last year, right? We do. So we do our, we call them our Thelma and Louise. Tours. <laughs> yes, so I hear. They are the best, best, best fun. 
we visit as many, like we might have a whole week where we go from one end of Queensland to the other. Well, actually, not really, because that would take longer than a week. And we try to fit in three shed visits per day. So we're both literally working 18-hour days because then we have our normal day at our computer when we get back to the hotel room. But we go to see these sheds. Some sheds, the, the shed boss's wives will have sent in decent cups because the wife will say, oh, those girls, the ladies can't drink out of those horrible shed cups. They cook us cakes. They show us all the fantastic stuff they're doing. They show off their tools and equipment. Look, they're just, it's adorable. It's the best fun. And it must give you a real sense of purpose for what you're doing because the nature of Australia is uh, there has to be a headquarters somewhere. But as you say, we're a six or seven hour flight or a five or six day drive from the furthest shed from where your office is. And so it must have given you a real sense of being out at the coalface, did it? Oh, definitely. Definitely. You can sit in the office and talk to them on the phone, but until you actually go to a little place like Binaway, as an example, who shed is the old fire station. And when Liz and I visited it, it had grass growing through the floor, holes in the roof. There were two guys sitting in armchairs that they dragged in with a dog and a dog. <laughs> the dog was also a member. So you don't you don't get just by talking on the phone sitting in your office how remote or damn necessary these sheds are to some of these little towns. And to go out there and see that for yourself and to see that this town's only got 150 people and 40 of them are at the men's shed. Like that that just says it all, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It absolutely does. So what's the hardest thing about your role, do you think? Oh, my boss. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We, I just need to copy and paste that answer in each week. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? <laughs> Beyond him. Actually, not being able to help everyone all the time, I guess. Because there's not there's nothing there's nothing mm. hard there's it's long hours but you don't care the hardest bit I guess at the, particularly now is not being able to help them I'm a I'm a fixer. What do you enjoy most when it comes Monday morning and you spring out of bed? What is it that you enjoy most about it? I enjoy think? knowing that I'm going to be talking to some pretty crazy funny old men today. <laughs> yep. Well, that's enough to get most of us out of bed most days. Yep. Mel, really <laughs> good to catch up. It's been a while and thank you for giving us a little bit of context to your role and uh, I guess bringing alive the story behind the person that so many people talk to when they ring the AMSA office. Thanks for working in the shed with us today. No problem. Thanks so much for inviting me, Aaron. We here on Working in the Shed, on the Shed Wireless, uh, want you to meet all of the staff uh, so that you have that relationship. But in other episodes, we head inside the sheds and learn more about what's happening in your operation, uh, what's particular about your shed perhaps it's two blokes in dragged in armchairs and a dog if that's the case we would love to talk to you so if you would like to feature in our working in the shed and you don't have to put your own hand up you can dob somebody else from the shed in if you like it's as simple as dropping us a line at the shed wireless at 
menshed.net, the shed wireless at menshed.net. Perhaps you went to one of the conferences or you got some advice from someone who was far away and you've thought to yourself, oh, I'd like to know more about that shed. Well, then let us know and we may feature them here on this segment, Working in the Shed. That's where we will pull the door closed on the Shed Wireless for this episode. But David, I have to send a special shout out to those who are listening to the Shed Wireless via the actual wireless. We have been picked up by a number of community radio stations around Australia. So some people are actually listening to the Shed Wireless on the wireless. That's very impressive, Aaron. Um, We welcome those stations on board and hopefully over the duration, we'll get a few more people uh, listening to the old-fashioned radio. Yeah, it's a good way to form a community connection through our community radio network. So if you have somebody connected with it, by all means, give us a shout. There is precedent now. We are being heard in a few places via community radio and we'll happily have a chat with how it might happen for you. But it remains the best thing that you can do to get the Shed Wireless out there is to share it with a mate. You can email a link from the AMSA website and you really just have to follow your nose if you're doing that. Even somebody with the most rude rudimentary tech knowledge can enjoy it that way so email a friend a link if you're a little more savvy help them subscribe that way it'll automatically come to them each week without having to go looking for it and if you're especially switched on do give it a rating and a review i saw this week that quite a few of you have done that thank you very much the reason why there's value in that is because the way the machine works the more ratings and reviews a podcast has the easier it is to find because there's a sea of podcasts out there in the world now so you kind of help the cream rise if you give it a rating and a review thank you to everyone who has been in touch via the shed wireless at menshed.net please continue to do so if you have a thought that the shedders could do to hear then just reach out anytime the shed wireless at menshed.net we would love to send a shout out to you and we will see you next time around on the shed wireless (laughs) 